life is, well, life. Sometimes it's full of cute stories. Story of the little Sunday school class. First grade children, teacher was waxing eloquent about story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the kids were all excited about the angels that came to warn the uh, Lot and his wife that uh, they were to flee the destruction. And then she got to the point where she told the class about uh, Lot's wife looking back and turning into a pillar of salt. The little boy couldn't resist. He raised his hand and said, my mummy did that this past week. We were out driving and she looked back and turned into a telephone pole. Life can be cute, but it also can be deadly serious. M. Scott Peck wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. His thesis of the book is that life is difficult. It's only as we recognize that life is difficult that we can understand how to cope with the challenges of life. And this is how he opens the book. Most do not fully see the truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan more or less incessantly, moistly or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, their difficulties, as if life should be easy. Life is a series of joys, ups, downs, difficulties, accomplishments. But sometimes when life is difficult, we can doubt God's goodness. You know, I teach a Sunday school class called Starting Point. And one of the things we, I say to the class in that starting point class is, as many of the students and uh, people there are investigating faith and what it means to be a Christian and, or how to get more serious in their Christian walk, I say to them over and over again as they look at life and the difficulties that doubt is not a four-letter word. Doubt is something that most of us experience. But sometimes in the midst of the doubts of life, we can question, God, question God's goodness, his compassion, his care over us. We're going to look at a psalm this day that deals with life. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 73. It's a psalm we're going to look at in detail, and we're going to follow along uh, with that almost verse for verse. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open or your mobile phone or watch the screen as we look at the, ver at the different uh, verses of that psalm. You will note that the psalm is written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was chosen by God, we find, in the Hebrew, First uh, Chronicles 15, to be one of the choir directors, one of the leaders of the people of Israel, as they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was the reminder to God's people of his presence, God's presence. And so after years of captivity, there, there's a great festival going on. And Asaph is probably the choir director. To put it in our own terminology, he would be our director of music or the choir director here, Caleb, or the person that is leading the congregation in worship as they come back to this high and holy time in the nation of Israel. The temple has been away. Or the Ark of the Covenant has been in captivity for years. And now it's being brought back into Jerusalem. And so the psalm opens, verse 1, with these words. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
Asaph starts with praise on his lips. But as we progress into the psalm, we find in verse 2 that things are changed. He says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Asaph starts by saying that life is good. But then he continues to say that life is difficult. You know, I love the Psalms because they portray real people. No, not people that are fantastic or people without doubts, not plastic saints, but people just like you and me, people with their own doubts, their own time of pondering and wondering what is going on. No, I can't peer into your own hearts. I don't know the individual pain that you're going through right now, the doubts you may be having, but God knows. And so for some of us, we could rightfully so say, surely God has been good to me. But that's a phrase from your past, at least at the moment. And in the present, you wonder, where is God? Well, what's the crisis that Asaph, the writer of this psalm, is facing? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Hey, says Asaph. When I look at the world around me, it seems like the fat cats are the people that prosper. That it's the rich that are that have the means to go to the country clubs and to the health spas and they enjoy life. It's the town bully or the school bully that seems to succeed in life. This theme of the unrighteous prospering in the face of a righteous God is it's something that's dealt with throughout the Bible. Turn ahead in your Bibles, five books to the book of Jeremiah, one of the great prophets of the Bible. Jeremiah t- chapter 12, verse 1. Jeremiah starts with praise. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, yet, I would speak to you about your justice. Why do the ways of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Both Jeremiah and Asaph, as he looks out, as they look out upon their world, they, they wonder why did the unhealthy, the wealthy, why did they seem to prosper? Back on our text, Asaph continues, verse five. They are free from the burdens of the common man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. And evil conceits of their hearts has no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten malice. Possibly, Asaph thought of that proverb, Proverbs 16, 18, we quote that a lot of, in a lot of different places. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. But Asaph hasn't seen that. He hasn't seen the destruction of the haughty. Asaph said that his faith foot almost slipped. Notice the passion in his words. The arrogant wear pride as a necklace. Only that, they clothe themselves with violence. 
There was a book that was very popular several years ago called Winning by Intimidation. It was written by a guy named Robert Ringer. And let me say that uh, if you're a type A personality, this is not the book for you. Winning by Intimidation. Let me make a generalization, wives, and that is that if your husband works on Wall Street, this is not a book for Father's Day. But the basic premise of the book is that it's the intimidators that get ahead. And so if you really want to succeed, Ringer says, the author, you need to intimidate your clients. You need to intimidate people around you. You need to intimidate fathers, your children. Because it's the it's the it's the people that intimidate that get ahead. So Asaph, as he looks upon his world, says, you know, this appears to be the case. Verse 10 is a difficult verse to translate in the Hebrew, but it seems to say this, therefore their people, the arrogant people, turn to them and drink up water in abundance. Reminds me of a sign I once saw in a public bathroom. It was above the, one of those hand blowers, you know, where you wash your hands, you go over to the hand blower, push the button, and the hot air comes out, and you rub your hands for a while, and then you give up, and as you walk out, you rub your hands dry in your pants or your coat. Well, on this particular um, hand dryer, the blower, there was a button. And right above the button, it said, from a message from your congressman, push button here. Now, I don't mean disrespect for our congressman. And Kim, if you're here, this is not meant for you. But there is a sense, isn't it? Don't we have a sense that sometimes it's the blowhard? The difficult person that gets ahead? The person who says, how can, this, how can God know, verse 11? How does the Most High have knowledge? Asaph is relentless in his observation. The singer, in the brink of unbelief, says in verse 13, Surely, in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. In vain. Young person, you ever felt that way? At school? You wonder, why am I not cheating or lying? Or messing around in school. It seems like the people that do that, they get the better grades. They get ahead. They're well-liked. It's the bully. No one would ever talk back to the bully, but I get no respect. Middle-aged person, you thought that after you shared your wedding vows and started on your career that life would be easy, but you have not advanced at all. And you wonder what's going on. And you tried to raise your kids in a godly fashion, but they're adolescents and they seem to be just on a trajectory that is, you just can't believe what's happening to you. Or a single person, you thought that God would have the right person for you and somehow it hasn't happened. Or older person, you thought that your kids would take care of you, but your kids don't seem to be interested in you at all. And you thought there would be two of you on that porch enjoying the sunsets but there's only one chair and now the the doctor has come to you and he's whispered that five letter most fearful word cancer and you wonder God 
This isn't fair. What is going on here? The first nugget from this passage is that life is not fair. But the singer Asaph is not a pessimist at all. As a matter of fact, the second nugget far exceeds the first. What's the answer? What's the answer to why do the wicked seem to prosper? You know, the answer I'm going to give you if it was not in the Bible, I'd be embarrassed to give it to you for it's so simple. The second nugget of truth, verse 16. When I try to understand all this, that's the unfairness of life. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. God has a way of meeting his people as we come to corporate worship. You know, we come with a variety of motives. We come to be with friends. We come to be with kind people. We come out of obligation. We come because it's part of the pattern of our life. But as we come, we are asking God for a miracle in our lives. As we come together to sing his praises, to stand under God's word, we're asking for a miracle. And that is that God would meet with us. That the triune God, God the Father, would be pleased with our worship as we sing praises and give honor to God the Son who died on the cross for our sins. As the Holy Spirit allows us to worship. You see, as we come, it's, we are not the audience. We are the participants. The pastor or the choir director is the conductor. But ultimately, the person who is exalted in our worship services is the Almighty God. And the amazing thing is that as we come to worship, week in and week out, God continues to meet with us. Oh, I know sometimes you can question the centrality of worship in the life of the Christian. No, we're all so busy. We have soccer games to go to, or we need to take our kids to play practice, or it's boating season, and now I'm really hitting a source point with some people here. It's boating season, and we think, well, is, is worship really that important? Several years ago, there was a article in the British uh, magazine called the British Weekly. It published an article that went to the editorial section of of the newspaper. And the article started like this. Dear sirs, it seems ministers feel that their sermons are very important and spend a great deal of time preparing them. I've been attending church quite regularly for 30 years And I've probably heard 3,000 sermons. To my consternation, I discovered I cannot remember a single sermon. I wonder if a pastor's time might be more properly spent on something else. Several people responded to that editorial page. Went back and forth in the editorial page until this final article came out. It said, Dear Sirs, I've been married for 30 years. During this time, I estimate that I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly cooked by my wife. Suddenly, I have discovered I cannot remember a single menu of a single meal. And yet, 
I have a distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death a long time ago. Before I went to seminary, I spent six years in the Air Force. I flew a desk. <laughs> For three of those six years, I lived at Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York. For those three years, I never established myself in any particular church. I would estimate that I probably went from, to, from between 15 to 20 different churches in the area. I'd go to the Baptist church for a while, and then I, something would just not be right. And I'd go to the Methodist church, and I went to the Brethren church, and then we'd go on deployment, and I'd, I'd be away for six, seven weeks. I'd come back, and, and I'd go to another church. I never really settled in any church at all. C.S. Lewis captures the essence of my life in a book you may be familiar with called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is a fictitious account written by Lewis concerning the, the uh, letters, the communications written between Screwtape, who is a senior devil, and Screwtape his uh, and Wormwood, his nephew. So Screwtape, the senior devil, writes to Wormwood on what he should be doing concerning his client, who's become a Christian. And Screwtape writes this to him. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. End of quote. It is so easy in our society, to become a taster or a connoisseur of churches. You go to the Baptist church for a while, and then you hear about good things happening at the community church, and so you go there, and then there's a new church plant taking place in New Haven, and so you go to that church, and then there's even something bigger in New York City, so you go to that church, and then you come back here to Black Rock, and the bald guy is preaching, and you think, I don't want that, I'm going to go to another church. And you become a taster or a connoisseur of churches. And that's exactly what happened to me in my time in the Air Force. I became a critic rather than a participant. Don't let the devil whisper in your ear, weekly worship is not important. Asaph, almost 3,000 years ago, answers that question. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, the problems of life, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The first nugget from this passage, life is difficult. The second nugget, life only makes sense as we come together for corporate worship. The third nugget, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to, ru to ruin. Do you find in the long run that the wealthy, the powerful are actually helpful or healthy? Have you seen that provocative sign in the midst of all the clamor over the lotto going on today, the, the, the lottery drawing? That sign that says, how much money is enough? Think of that word of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. Asaph. Only after he comes out of the sanctuary of God understands that the haughty, that the proud, that the people that try to live without God will one day be judged. Verse 19, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Sigmund Freud once said, I never met a man that was not desperately afraid. The rich, the arrogant, the wicked may cloak their fears. W.C. Field has a classic statement on this. He says, a rich man is nothing more than a poor man with money. And they fear they will become just like the rest of us. The singer, Asaph, has learned that judgment is coming. Verse 20. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. What a graphic illustration. You ever have a dream when, just as you awake, you had just a glimpse, just a... You just remember just a part of it. And when someone asks you, what did you dream about? You, well, it was, it was, but you can't quite remember. It's a fantasy in your past. And that's the analogy that Asaph uses here concerning God's judgment of those people. He will treat them as fantasies when he awakes. As if they never existed. God's personal rejection. Because they have rejected him. It's a dismissal of someone as if they have no interest in them. God dismisses the arrogant, the ungodly. He says they are but fantasies. Isn't that precisely what hell is all about? Thomas Hobbes, the Puritan, defined hell as truth seen too late. One day, all will acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. But for some, that acknowledgement will be too late. And for all eternity, God will dismiss those people as fantasies. Again, C.S. Lewis captures this very well in his book, The Weight of Glory. Quote, God will despise them as fantasies. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, and finally unspeakably ignored. Ignored by God. For all eternity. That is hell. The singer now summarizes what has happened as his feet has almost slipped, but he's come to the point of realizing that life makes sense in the sanctuary as he comes to worship. As he realized the destiny of the lost. Verse 21, the final Final thing, the final nugget. 
When my heart was greed and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet after he comes out of a time of worship, verse 23, yet, I, yet, you are, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. The fourth nugget, Asaph realizes that God has a hold of him. That God is holding him by his right hand. When I think of this analogy, I think of a time in my parenting when I was, uh, when my kids were a lot, lot smaller. And I picture us on top of a large, long staircase. And as we start down those multiple stairs, I reach out and I take my kid's hand. And as we start down this long staircase, at some point the kid, whether it be rebellion or whether it be his own or her own identity, they try to let go of my hand. And maybe they unclasp my hand. But I know the danger. And I won't let go of them. I continue to hold their hand. For I realize that my hand is essential for their safety. I heard Dr. Howard Hendricks one time, professor of Dallas Theological Seminary, talking about this particular aspect of life. He was unmarried at that point. And a woman came to him and said, Howie, I just want you to know I've been praying that you'll be my son-in-law. To which Hendricks replied, Thank God for our unanswered prayer. <laughs> now I can say, as I look back at my own life, there have been numerous times as I look back, I am so grateful that God didn't answer my selfish prayer. I might have married the wrong woman. I would have chosen the wrong career. I would have chased the wrong dream. But God took a hold of my hand way back in when I was 13 years old. And he's never let go. Asaph, the singer in this song, has gone from the precipice of despair where his foot almost slipped to a place of understanding and complacency. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing, on, nothing else on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far away from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Notice what has changed here. The situation hasn't changed at all. The arrogant are still arrogant. The proud are still proud. The wealthy are still using their wealth as a means of power. But everything has changed. Because after a time of worship, after a time of coming into the sanctuary of God, Asa's internal understanding has changed. Verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. 
Worship in the sanctuary of God. Consistent worship in the sanctuary of God is necessary for the health of your soul and of my soul. For it allows us to take a long view of our present and a longer view of our future. William Gladstone, the English statesman, who was four times Chancellor of the Exchequer, five times Prime Minister of Great Britain, a godly man at the end of his life was uh, was granted uh, he granted an interview to a young man who came to him with a series of questions, and he started with this question. How do I succeed and be an important man like you are, Mr. Gladstone? Where do you want to go to school, Gladstone asked. Well, Oxford, of course, was the reply. What then? I will become a lawyer. What then? I will be elected to the House of Commons. What then? I will become prime minister. What then, young man? I will write my memoirs. What then? I will die. What then, asked Gladstone. As the young man pondered the question, Gladstone put his arms, put his hands on the young boy and said, Son, go home, get a Bible, and find the answer to that question after death. What then? Worship of God is necessary. For in our time of struggle, In our time when life is difficult, only as we come to corporate prayer, corporate worship, corporate singing God's praise, as we stand under the preaching of God's word, does life make sense to us? The Shorter Westminster Catechism asks the first, possibly the most important theological question that can be asked. And the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Asaph sums it up in verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. May the words of Asaph give us comfort as we seek to live a consistent Christian life in a place where sometimes life does not make sense, this side of eternity. But eventually it will. If you have, a, some, if you have an item you'd like to have prayer for, we'd like to invite you to come forward. We're going to have members of the prayer team here who would love to pray with you about a major issue or a minor issue in your, love, in your life. Would you stand as we conclude in prayer? Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through this psalm. Help us to be guided as we seek to give you our praise and adoration. Thank you, Father, that we can prepare for our great life of service to you, of service to our fellow man, and, Father, of the great joy of enjoying you forever. And God's people said, Amen.